call the the physician or the cardiologist, he understood that I wasn't really understanding, and so he looked. He made sure that he looked me directly in the eye when he told me that, you know, you have three to four weeks to live. Welcome to Let's Talk CP, the new podcast series about all things cerebral palsy, presented by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Each episode features different clinicians, parents, people with CP, and other experts talking about ways to help you better navigate your journey with CP. I'm Jason Benetti, play-by-play announcer of the Chicago White Sox and ESPN, and I have CP. And I'm Cynthia Fursina, the Vice President of the Cerebral Palsy Foundation, mom of a daughter with CP, and CP Research Advocate. Today, we have a fantastic episode with my very good friend and CP and disability advocate, Michael Kutcher. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I know. Well, you know, you and I have been friends for a really long time. I, I was trying to think of how long it's, 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 gosh, it's been, I think like 12 or 14 years. Can't even remember. I, I think it's around, around 10 to 12 years. I, you know, I seem to lose track of time these days. I know. Um, I know. But, uh, it, it's been a, a long, long friendship and, and a great one along the way. It sure has. And and so now that we've launched this new podcast series, Let's Talk CP, you were one of the first guests that I actually really wanted to have on. Um, I know everyone is going to want to hear what you have to say, and and we're going to have a uh, a really great uncensored conversation about all sorts of things, uh, CP-related, life, um, all of those things. But first of all, I thought it would be great for our audience to – Hear for a little bit about you with your with your background and and just you know what all you're up to these days because not only of course are you a cerebral palsy advocate disability advocate you're on the cerebral palsy foundation advisory circle but you're also a husband you're a father you're you know doing lots of things including working on writing a book which we'll talk more about but could you just tell us a little bit more about who is Michael Kutcher. <laughs> Yeah, wow. When you when you map all that out, it, it really sounds like a guy that that has his plate full and is busy. Uh, and I guess <laughs> maybe I have. Um, um, yeah. So you know uh, where I am today. I you know I'm, I continue to be an advocate uh, for you know not only cerebral palsy but uh, disabilities all all around. You know, and, and that journey got started. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that, that journey got started about 10 to 15 years ago and, and much with your, your support and friendship along the way. Um, but uh, along with that, um, you know, I, I found another cause that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, no pun intended uh, with my, my heart transplant. Um, but I, I, I found myself kind of, um, thrown into, uh, organ donation a- advocacy as well. You know the the importance of trying to make a difference in that community. Yeah, uh, you know I live here in Denver, Colorado. I've got you know three great kids uh, and a beautiful wife and a full time job as well, uh, working for a, a large pension firm. Uh, and as you had mentioned, I'm I'm in the midst uh, the final steps of of writing a book, uh, my memoirs and, and my life experiences. 
as well as I also sit on an advisory for a for an organization that is developing a, a an application to to find care and assistance for individuals with um, with disabilities called Joshin. So, uh, you know, you boil all that together. I, I guess I am a, a busy guy. Yeah, you're just uh, yeah. That sounds pretty darn busy. I'm glad that you could you could take the time today to to join us on our podcast. And there's so many things that I want to talk about. But what I want to start with before we get to your book or how you got involved with becoming a disability advocate, I want to walk all the way back. Um, I want to go back to the beginning of your story. And that is when you were, because you always tell this story, and it's a great story, about how you are a twin, and you aren't just a twin, but you were a surprise twin. <laughs> I remember your story of telling uh, telling that. And I thought that would be a great uh, place to start just for our audience to to walk through that sort of beginning of, of Michael Kutcher and, and, and your growing up time, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that. Yeah, um, surprise twin is is the way that I put it. Um, you know, uh, back in in 1978, when my parents were were getting ready to to have their their second child, I have an older sister as well. But uh, when they went to the hospital to for delivery, they only thought they were having one child, um, and little did they know. But two about two hours prior to birth the physician notified them that there was actually two um, and that um, there was a little me in there that, uh, that they couldn't detect, you know, moment after my, my brother was born, uh, I was born as well. Uh, but I was, you know, more, more so a preemie uh, where my brother Chris was born around six and a half pounds. I was around four and um, I, I required some additional oxygen and, and um, some time in the NICU, but after you know about a month, I was able to to go home and be be with my family. So it's it's a funny story that I like to tell, um, just because you know you never know when uh, unexpected things are going to arise and and when surprises come up. And, and I I think that was probably one of the biggest surprises uh, within my parents' life. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, nowadays most women know if they're having twins, but but back then not so not so much. Um and so that is a really interesting story and it sort of sets the stage, you know, twins um, you know, do have, you know, there are cases of CP where one twin, you know, might have CP and one doesn't, but but for you, I think uh, you didn't know, or your family didn't know, if, if I recall the story correctly, you know, for a while that you had a diagnosis of CP. And so I think our audience would, you know, really love to hear a little bit about that um, and how it was for you growing up, especially having an older sister and then a, a twin brother, how, you know, your CP either played a role or didn't play a role. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, my diagnosis wasn't until later, in, in, until I was about three years old, um, to where my mom uh, really kind of recognized that there was a difference in development between myself and my siblings, where, you know, she, she went to, to the physician, the physician told her everything was fine, 
that I would just kind of catch up with my siblings. Uh, but my mom kind of demanded answers and and really saw the the signs that you know I, I wasn't developing as well. And as I said, demanded answers. And when she finally got the answers, um, kind of the answers she was looking for, you know, simply as you know, um, CP comes in all forms and shapes and sizes, and and sometimes is misdiagnosed because they really don't know where to to put you in what category and, and what with what disability. So, yeah, they looked at all of my developmental um, setbacks and disabilities, and they they you know put me in the categories with having mild cerebral palsy at that time. And and really, back in the in the early '80s, and even in some respects uh, later on in years and in. in Today, there really wasn't a lot of treatment um, or resources available. You know, it's not like my mom could go to Google and and you go to the uh, Cerebral Palsy Foundation website and find all the great resources and, and you know people within the community and definitions and, and treatments. She really was on her own, and they told her. You know what, what the kind of the issues were: my mobility issues, and speech issues, hearing, eyesight, everything that, uh, as time went on, that we we kept kind of uncovering. Because you grew and up in uh, was, you grew up in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, right? Right. Yep. Yep. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So you know we're not even in a big big city to be able to even have more resources. Uh, if there were any, maybe called Cedar Rapids, small town, Iowa, but you know, they just weren't available. So, you know, my mom needed her mission to, uh, develop these resources on her own. Uh, she would take me to, you know, the swimming pool to do swimming lessons to, to strengthen my, my, um, my muscles. She would, you know, uh, have me you know, doing some dexterity things in the home, right along with my twin and, and my sister as well. It was very encouraging to have my mom, you know, kind of assist me along the way and, and, and be so involved in my, my development and, and increasing my development. But within my family, it was really a story about inclusion because Listen, the, the whole kind of the mantra was that Mike can do everything that Chris and, and Tasha can do. And for the most part, I did. Uh, I would just have to try a little bit harder if I wanted to succeed. And, you know, that was, that was awesome. Uh, growing up in my, my family with, with that type of inclusion. And to be honest with you, I, I really didn't understand my disability for many, many years. Because it was never a focus in my family. How old were you when you think you realized that there might be, you know, that you might have a challenge or a difference, especially having a twin, a same gender twin, you know, did that make it less, you know, less apparent or more apparent or than maybe someone who didn't have a sibling or, you know, wouldn't have like that sort of, you know, family dynamic? Yeah, it was interesting because I think I always knew 
but I never really could pinpoint what the difference was. I always knew, you know, hey, I'm the only one in the family wearing glasses. Uh, I'm the only one in the family that needs to wear a hearing aid or has to go to speech class. But I wasn't old enough, you know, when you're six, seven, to even know what a disability was. It wasn't until, you know, a little a few years later, I would say maybe I was around 10 or so, where um, my mom uh, was actually a, um assistant in a uh, in a special ed special needs classroom for an area school and um, they were having a picnic for the families to come and for the, the kids to come within the class and my brother and I went uh, to the picnic with my mom and um, there was a little boy there uh, that had cerebral palsy that was using a gatewalker and I was really intrigued by this and was, he was a he was a great little kid, and I, I played with him on the playground. And and for that quick, you know, hour, two-hour event that we had, I kind of made a new friend. I remember driving home from that picnic with, with my mom and asking her the question, you know, hey, tell me about Timmy. Like, why, why does Timmy use a walker, and why does he have braces on his legs? And that's when she explained to me that Timmy had cerebral palsy and it was actually the same disability that that you have. And at that point, I just, it was an eye opener to me that, okay, so A, I am different. And B, there's actually a name for it. You know, so that's why I kind of got the first inkling that maybe I had different circumstances than than my brother and and my sister as well and you know I I talk about growing up in my family and the sense of inclusion but I I felt that difference outside the family as well specifically kind of on the on the playground scene and and with other kids and you know they definitely noticed my different differences and you know, pointing those out through bullying and, and other things. There was that moment with, with my mom after the picnic that I, I finally had kind of the light bulb went off for me. How did that make you feel? Because I think that is not an uncommon experience, sadly, you know, of that uh, elementary school bullying or, you know, leaving kids out who seem different, you know, or what have you especially since you had an older sister and a twin brother, how did, how did that dynamic sort of work and and how did you feel about it? Yeah, it was difficult. I I always say, you know, there's, there's this phrase that the the playground is a, is a, can be a happy place, but it can also be a very dark place for kids, especially in elementary school. And, I felt both sides of that, um, and, and the dark moments. It was tough, you know. I've I've experienced the bullying, the name calling, and at that moment, you just you don't know how to register it. Um, you're just getting teased and you're picked on, and you're 
you know, you're just being bullied. And it it makes you sad. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you uh, feel lost in a world of all these kids that, you know, don't have glasses and don't have hearing aids and can maybe run faster and, and do do quote unquote normal ability things. And so it was a difficult time at school at, in some points, but in other points, you know, I I really felt comforted by having a twin brother there. And I know that a lot of kids that are on the playground, uh, they're being bullied, don't have that other sibling there to support them and, and build them up and have friends come and, you know, uh, befriend you and, and kind of hold you up when you're in your dark moment. Uh, and I, I guess I don't even can't imagine what some kids go through today um, as we see bullying kind of go to what I feel is like another level in the world that we live live in today. But I think that the important thing is even though you don't have a twin there with you or a sibling there with you to hold you up, there there are people that you can turn to and there's communities you can turn to and friendships that you may not know that you have that you can you know, uh, tie on to, to assist you through those dark times. And I think as individuals with disability, when you, you start talking about bullying, it makes us stronger. But it, it feeds into our ability uh, to overcome yet another thing. Um, because you know, me having to overcome the inability to do some things that I've had to do um, that I could or could not do during that time. Being bullied was, to me, just another element that I had to to kind of overcome and, and persevere through. Yeah, but certainly when you're a kid, that is not a pleasant experience at all. And, uh, no, you don't, yeah, you don't, you don't understand it um, and understand why people are so can be so mean and right. I, I think it really got now that I'm I'm older and I have children of my own it really starts in the house it really starts in the household with the family and my message to anyone that's listening that that doesn't have children that go through bullying is you know it starts with you it starts with you explaining to your children, that there are people out there with differences and with with different abilities and that are different than you. And the story about acceptance of other people and the knowledge that even though people don't have the ability to do things that maybe you do and you take for granted every day, that they still have the ability to to be good people and they're still good people and, and they can teach you a lot if you just open your ears and open your heart and, and befriend them. No, that's, that's absolutely true. 
And speaking of, you know, difficult times, after elementary school, when you entered middle school, I think you had another really difficult time period, um, you know, surrounding what you referenced earlier and why you're so passionate about organ transplants. I wondered if you might, you know, share a little bit about that experience with our audience. I mean, middle school even in the best of circumstances is is tough for for any kid but but for you you had you know some real challenges it'd be great to hear your hear your story yeah um you know moving in the middle school is is a different challenge uh it's just you know another step in life and and you know, as I see my kids go from elementary to middle school, I'm reminded of just those social challenges that come with that that movement. But for me, you know, going into to middle school and going through middle school was kind of disrupted. Uh, it was the the last year of my my middle school uh, eighth grade uh, where I became you know ill and. Uh, you know, we we thought that I had the flu. It was the middle of winter, right around actually right around uh, this time, and yeah, you know, it was actually uh, on the twenty third of November. I'll never forget it. Uh, is when I was I was admitted to to the hospital because I you know my mom since I just wasn't getting better uh, from what we thought that that I had the flu. So when I was admitted to the hospital. They realized through X-ray that that my heart was actually four times the size of a, a normal heart, and from there I would see, you know, specialists and a cardiologist, and it was later determined um, by a cardiologist that, you know, my heart was failing and I need a, a heart transplant, and you know, the the time frame was was roughly three to four weeks to to get that transplant. Wow. Did they, did you know that? I mean, were you aware that it was like that dire of a situation? No one kind of, kind of needed to tell me how dire it was. I, I picked it up slowly through the, the conversation that the cardiologists and my family were having. Um, at, at first, when I was told that I needed a heart transplant, I, I remember thoughts going through my head of specifically how long am I going to be out of school and yeah the only other hospitalization that I could think of was like having your tonsils out where you get a lot of ice cream so I'm I'm asking like how much ice cream can I have uh, because yeah at, at, thir- at, at 13 years old you just don't understand what's going on and even hearing the word transplant, organ transplant, I don't even know what that is. So for some reason, I thought that, you know, they would just like a pickle jar in the back, you know, <laughs> ba- basement of the hospital with a heart in it that they could just give me and it would be okay. So they did, I didn't really comprehend um, how how serious it was until... Yeah, the the conversation around you know uh, time frames and having three to four weeks really kind of jogged me, and, and I, I recall the the physician or the cardiologist 
he understood that I wasn't really understanding. And so he looked, he made sure that he looked me directly in the eye when he told me that, you know, you have three to four weeks to live. And, uh, yeah, that's a statement I'll never forget. A statement that can definitely wake you up. Yeah, that's like unbelievable. I remember you, you know, talking and telling me about that story and, and just how, incredibly, you know, I don't even know what to say about that kind of a situation and how your, you know, your family rallied around you. Yeah. I mean, it all goes back to, to family support and, you know, those, those three to four weeks that, that I had, uh, going through that traumatic experience, uh, there were ups and downs, uh, with my health and, and, uh, you know, I, I really got a sense of community. I got a sense of the loving family that I had, of friendships, of, of a lot of things, of life. You know, you, when you're giving a, you know, for, for some purposes called a death sentence in a way, um, you really reflect on what's important in your life. No, and, and just, you know, it, it makes you appreciate what is important and uh, reflect upon that. And, you know, to finish off the story, three to four weeks passed. And, you know, it got really, got really dicey. And it came down to a a 48-hour window uh, to where I needed to receive my transplant. And, you know, by the whatever powers there are to be thankful for and, and, you know, the thankfulness and generosity of, selflessness of my donor you know i'm here on this podcast 29 30 years later that's unbelievable i know and you have been a great advocate for organ donation ever since and your your heart is is beating well and strongly all this time and all the time that i've known you i haven't known you to have you know any any real subsequent issues related to that since then? I, I think, right? In, ter- in terms of your health, yeah. No, I'm, uh, you know, I'm as healthy as, as I can be, and and you know, I, I'm so grateful uh, because the odds were against me. The odds are still against me, um, and it just seems like my whole life is is uh, up against the odds and, and I don't really care. It's a whole thought process of uh, what are you going to do? You either, you either can uh, accept what occurred and, and find the positive in it, or you can be a victim. And you know me well enough. I just choose not to be the victim. You've never been a victim. That's one of the things I love about you. That's for sure. And so that's a great, you know, that is a a good segue to my next question, because one of the things we, I really want to talk about with you is what it's like. You've now had a heart transplant. You, you have CP. You're now in high school. We're going to go to the high school years. You're in high school. You are uh, interested in dating and all those things, thinking about the future. 
Tell us about that. You've got an older sister, you have a twin brother, you're entering, you know, the high school years and all the things that come along with that. And I think you have some pretty interesting insights and experiences that happened uh, during those years. It's not all smooth sailing. I know that. So uh, sharing with our audience a little bit about, about your high school experience, I think would be great. Yeah. Yeah. High school was an interesting time frame for me. You know, I had some family dynamics that kind of moved me from from one high school to another. And, and uh, I ended up uh, going through high school in a very small rural community um, with, you know, a small student base versus kind of a bigger student base in Cedar Rapids. And High school for me was really about starting to find my own identity. And that, that was mainly a lot of that's due to, um, to the twin thing. And, and, you know, uh, am I going to be associated with my twin for the rest of my life or through my high school years? Or am I going to kind of branch off? and do my own thing and, and find my own groove, so to speak. Um, so I, it was important for me to find out who Michael was and, and find my own groove. So I was, I was exploring doing that, but also I was, you know, trying along doing that, I was trying to find my, my niche of, you know, uh, how to deal with my disability and also deal with my transplant and, and stuff. And I was making changes within myself and my surroundings to uh, unfortunately kind of mask my, my disability. What does um, that mean? What do you mean? Well, I was, you know, I didn't feel that my hearing aid was effective for me as much. Um, I didn't like the stairs in high school with my hearing aid. So I learned to adapt, stop wearing my hearing aid. And I learned to only hear out of one ear. And, I, and my brain's adapted to that. And also, you know, I got rid of the glasses, got some contacts. And I, I tried to, you know, kind of, fit in more because I didn't want people questioning why I had a hearing aid or questioning why I had glasses. You know, especially these thick profile glasses when my twin brother doesn't have these. So I I you know started to kind of change some of that and you know I have a very mild form of cerebral palsy. So it doesn't really come through to the, the naked eye. So I tried to kind of mask that the best I could because I didn't want the societal view to come upon me with as an individual with a disability because you know, the, in my head in those informative high school years, the question is, you know, what's a, what's girlfriend going to think? Or what, you know, what's the, 
what's the female population of the high school going to think? Is anyone going to date me? Is, you know, am I still going to be able to make friends? Um, it's all about acceptance in those years and with the clicks and the, the various things. And I really wasn't mature enough to be able to accept my disability through those those high school years. Yeah, I, I think that's hard for, for anyone, and especially probably, you know, having a twin, you know, any twin, just even siblings that are still in the same high school with you or whatever. Do you think that made it harder or, or easier or bo- a little bit of both? I think, I mean, my brother definitely made it easier. He's always made it easier because uh, he's always supported me and and um, been the one person that is always by my side and, and my champion. So I think that, that there's a level of, of support that I'm really thankful for. And, yeah, I mean, Chris and I, you know, in high school, that's where we started to kind of divide and go our own separate ways find our own identity, so to speak. So as as much as I say that he was there for me and to support me and stuff, he was kind of off doing his own thing. Uh, he was more the jock, the musical uh, drama type guy, and, and I was, you know, not so much. Uh, not into sports and just kind of into relationships and, and friendships and, and uh you know, music and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that uh, I remember you telling a story to me, and um, maybe you would be willing to share it on the podcast. Uh, there was a, I think, I, I think this was in high school when you were playing, I think, uh, basketball or shooting baskets with your brother, and you sort of had a, a, a kind of a you know, a tough, a tough love conversation of some sort. Is that something that uh, yeah. you'd want to share? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that actually happened um, more so kind of the prior to, to me having my, my transplant. Oh, it's a okay. great story. Yeah, that uh, is a good story. Yeah. So when we were roughly around 11, 12 years old, uh, right after we had the conversation with, with my mom about, you know, Timmy and, and the disability. And, and it was the, um, uh, the eye-opening uh, conversation around my disability with my mom. Uh, Chris and I were um, in our back driveway and we were uh, playing basketball and we were playing, you know, the, the friendly game of horse. I was actually losing at the time. Uh, he probably still is. I know he still is to this day a better basketball player than I am. Um, but, I, you know, I was behind in letters and, and we were down to the final letter and, and he went underneath the hoop and he called a shot. And and what that means is when he, you know, when you call it, you got you to gotta do everything that, that the other individual does. And, and he actually called the shot again a right-handed shot. And when he made the basket, you know, he was happy. He thought he won the game. And uh, I thought I could kind of sway the rules of the game because I had, you know, 
my, my cerebral palsy doesn't allow me to kind of, uh, have as much mobility on my right side as my left. So I, I, I took the opportunity to actually shoot the shot with my left hand. And uh, it was at that moment where he he uh, confronted me and said, you know, hey, you, you, uh, you didn't shoot the shot exactly how I was, as I said it. And um, he, you know, I proceeded, I guess, to kind of sulk and, and explain to him that, you know, he was actually cheating because he knew I couldn't really shoot with my right hand as well. And he would take an advantage of my my uh, disability, I guess, uh, within <laughs> the game. And you know, at that moment, he just kind of he shot me straight um, and said, "Hey, yeah, you can't play the victim here. You can't, you know, always call this card and and as much as you think I'm I'm bending the rules." you're bending the rules as well because, you know, you can't use your, this disability and your inability to shoot with your right hand as an excuse, as a workaround. You know, he said that you know, he's, he doesn't have the ability to, to make the shot for me and, and no one else can kind of come out and, and make this shot for me that if it's a right-handed shot, I've got to, you know, attempt and do the best I can do to make that shot. Um, and I think it's a it's a valuable lesson, and it's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my life, um, and sticks with me uh, to this day. It's just yeah, you know, there's there's going to be things that we struggle with doing, and there's going to be obstacles that that. Uh, we we might not be able to overcome, but it doesn't mean that you you know shouldn't keep trying and uh, you know trying to make that shot and and overcome those obstacles. And you know I I I lost that game, uh, of course, uh, but I walked out that that court with a kind of the winner I feel on that day because. Yeah, you know, just it empowered me. Uh, that conversation did. It motivated me to to um, work in my disability in a different. Yeah, different no, light. I always remember you telling me that story. Now I want to move to your college years. I feel like I'm walking through your decades. <laughs> But I think you've got some great lessons and things that actually lead up to, you know, your decision to become, you know, an advocate in this field, which you, you know, you hadn't always decided to do. But before we get to that, I think college experience and young adulthood also was an interesting, you have some really interesting insight um, there as well. So wondered if you might, you know, want to share a little bit about how, you uh, did, you know, went through the process of self-discovery and and just some of the challenges and ups and downs of that college young adult sort of time frame. Yeah, my my college years were um, were interesting and somewhat limited. 
they were limited uh, essentially because due to my health issues, predominantly you know, my my heart issues. And to be honest with you, my grades. Um, <laughs> I, I I I didn't find myself going to a, a larger university and you know being able to live the college experience on campus. My brother, you know went to the University of Iowa and I in Iowa City and I opted to to attend a community college for a couple of years and then also move on to uh, 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 the other two years, three years at a, uh, a smaller university in Cedar Rapids. And so that limited kind of my college exposure and ability to, to really be uh, to interact with the typical college life. But, you know, college was, you know, a little like high school to where I was, you know, I had the contacts, I got rid of the hearing aid, trying to fit in, trying to find kind of my groove and, and, and my own identity in the college world and, and, and work through, um, obstacles there, of course, you know, finding employment and, and doing some things. Uh, so it was really kind of a, a, a challenge navigating college as well. Uh, I think with some disabilities, I think that there is some need to kind of, on the learning aspects of things, I found it difficult to, to really, uh, concentrate on my studies and, um, make that focus and, and, it was a challenge for me to kind of go to that next level in college and, you know, with the, the studies as well. Maybe not disability related, but uh, one of the, the more fascinating things is just, you know, what, what occurred with my family dynamics. You know, my brother um, kind of went on his own and followed a, a dream of his that he always had to, to uh, be an actor, and you know, it's not every day that, that during college you, you know, it, his acting actually started in the uh, as a modeling career, and it's not every day that your brother comes home and says, "Yeah, I'm moving to New York to to be a supermodel." Um, so <laughs> yeah, that that occurred in in college, and um, you know, he's he's since gone on to do to do great things and be a, a household name and uh, could be prouder of him and his his accomplishments and uh, both on a personal and professional level and, and uh, the causes, philanthropy, everything he does. Um, um, it's, yeah, it's great to see and I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. so proud of him along the way. Now, let me ask you a question. We never have said his name. You know, I didn't say it and you haven't said it yet. So, do you, I mean, because you called him Chris, which actually is his name, His but his middle name is is Ashton. Um, yeah. So when, so was it in college he switched to not using, to using Ashton as, as his sort of acting name? Is that, is that? Yeah. Uh, sorry to confuse the, the listeners on this. Um, you know, my, my brother's, you know, real name is, is Chris and, um, w- within the family circles, he's always going to be Chris. 
Thank you for listening today to my conversation with Michael Kutcher. This is part one of a two-part series, so stay tuned for part two coming soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk CP. I'm Jason Benetti, CPF ambassador and sports television announcer. If you like our show and want to know more, please visit our new CP resource page at cpresource.org where you can listen to all of our episodes and subscribe so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in Let's Talk CP, we'd appreciate a rating. And please tell a friend or another family member about the show to help others and increase cerebral palsy awareness and education. Be sure to tune in to Let's Talk CP for our next episode. This podcast represents the opinions of our guests and the content should not be taken as medical advice. Each person and situation is unique, so please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.